Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, as we gather together here, we are seeking to give you glory and praising your holy name. Your word says that this is our spiritual service of worship. It's what we offer you as as a life devoted to your great name. As we sang this morning, it is quite literally the breath you give us that is in our lungs. The life that we live is the life you give us. So we want to stand this morning and praise your name saying, Thank you, Father, for life, for breath, and for everything. We thank you, as Dale already said, for mothers and and for days like this to remind us of the important things of this life. Most importantly, God, I pray that you would show us a greater vision for your name. And as we turn to your word and we, we think about a text that many in the room will have heard, it's one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. Would you give us new eyes to see, new hearts to receive, and new, new minds to be open to the truth of your scriptures? God, you are good, and you do good, and you call us to great things. I pray you'd be with us now, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue to walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. If you would like to join me there, if you have a Bible, you can join me in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 and what it means to be salt and light in the world. But before we we look at these verses and before we we think about what they mean, let's just two things that I think must be said before we get started. First is the context, the surroundings of those verses. This text comes right after what are known as the Beatitudes. And if you were here a few weeks back when we finished looking at those together, the last time I was with you, we saw these attributes that mark being a follower of Jesus Christ. What does devotion to Jesus look like? It looks like following the Beatitudes. They're those marks of the believer, and they're the bedrock by which this text comes out of. So keep those attributes in mind, being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercifulness, being pure of heart, peacemakers, those attributes. Keep those fresh in your mind, because they are the the substance of the metaphors that Jesus will be using in this part of his sermon. And second, this is a kingdom manifesto, meaning that it is for those who are already followers of Jesus Christ. These actions are not the means we we, we receive acceptance or access into salvation. Please hear me. The acts of being salt and life Light in the world are not the acts that earn you salvation, but they are the acts that come out of, that are, what are produced in us after we've put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And I get that from, from verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Verse 2 says, and he opened his mouth, mouth and taught them. So Jesus is speaking to followers not to seekers. So with that said, let us look at these verses together. Let me read them, read them to you. Verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5 say this. You are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus begins his two metaphors with the metaphor of salt. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Claiming that those who follow Christ are the salt of the earth, there are two aspects that we think about there. First, on the earth. So at this time, Jesus was a regional itinerant preacher. But he had far greater claims to make for his followers than just the cities and towns surrounding Jerusalem. He speaks of them being salt throughout or on or of the whole earth. He'll go on to say in verse 14 that they're the light of the world. And this, so this is uniqueness and totality. Followers are the salt of the whole earth. No one else on this earth is salt. No one that doesn't follow Christ can be called salt. All followers of Jesus Christ are salt. It's who we are and who we will be. And all followers before now or into the future will be marked as being salt. But that leads us to the more uh, challenging question of the text is, what does it mean to be salt? What does that mean? And I say that because salt has multiple functions, and Jesus is not explicit about which function he's thinking of in this text. So we'll do a little detective work, and, and I'll give you my, my thoughts and, and my, from my study, and, and I want you to know that there's, there's basically two different thoughts. So uh, the first way that we would understand salt today would be that salt is used as a flavor enhancer. Putting salt in food is, is a very common use. It, we, we notice it. It's, it's natural. So you, it's probably the first thing you might have thought of when you think about salt. It's a good inclination. It's the, the, the thing we know about salt is that it, it's used as, as a flavor enhancer. And that would have been true in Jesus' day as well. And second, and this is where most of the the people I read came down on is that the main function of salt in Jesus' day was for preservation. So the use of salt, it preserves meat and things like that. That would have been found in common in the home and in society in Jesus' day. And again, so you don't have to tell me, I know that salt is still used in food production today. I understand what preservatives are. That is salt. I get that. I just meant when I said that, that salt is a flavor enhancer is just that... Um, Unless you're in food production, you probably only think of salt as a, as a flavor enhancer. And I, I do know that we still use it that way. Um, but with those two ideas laid out, I'm, I'm more compelled to believe that I think Jesus is using salt as preservative. But if you see Jesus' metaphor as taste, you wouldn't be alone in that view. And that is, that is, we can have that discussion later. That's just fine. But let's think about what that would then mean if Jesus is saying that, that we are salt. We're, we're about preservation. So we can see what Jesus is implying to his followers is that in all of society, it is Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, that preserve what is good. And by good, I mean everything that affirms Jesus' teachings and God's character. Believers are salt because believers preserve God's goodness 
in society. The people of this earth physically and spiritually do not and cannot preserve moral uprightness or see Christ as the treasure he is. And because I know there's some scientists in the room, uh, this also makes sense just if you think about the laws of thermodynamics, which I know when you look at me, you think thermodynamics. And so I'm here to deliver on that. All things trend toward disorder. More specifically, the second law of thermodynamics states that as one goes forward in time, the net degree of disorder of any isolated or closed system will always increase or at least stay the same. So what does that mean? Think about this. You draw a hot bath and you come back to it two hours later. That water is no longer hot. So all of creation goes from more ordered to less ordered. And so what Christ says is as the salt of the earth, we are preserving, we are keeping God's character and Christ's teaching in the world. So how do we do that? It's in the pursuit of, it's by walking in faith, pursuing the blessings that come from living the Beatitudes. So think about it. If we're taking seriously what Jesus just said verses before about how we live in this world, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, being merciful to our enemies, being pure of heart, making peace, being persecuted. If you take those things seriously, we will be unique. And that is what being salt is. We're preserving the good that God gave us, revealed by Christ through his word, by living out our lives as devoted followers of Christ. And this transcends time and culture. All cultures, all peoples, everywhere. If you are living as Christ in the culture you exist in, you are living uniquely and differently than the unbelieving world around you. John Stott said it this way. Of course, God has set other restraining influences in the community. He has himself established institutions in his common grace which curbs man's selfish tendencies and prevents society from slipping into anarchy. Chief among them are the state, with its authority to frame and enforce laws, and the home, including marriage and family life. These exert a wholesome influence in the community. Nevertheless, God intends the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. R.V.G. Tasker puts it like this. The disciples are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. So please hear what I'm saying. The, the church is not the state. And also, I do not believe that unbelievers cannot bring noble works to society. Every time a firefighter saves a child from a burning building or a government official writes a law that gives human flourishing or a, a f- unbelieving man and woman marry and raise kids in an unbelieving but nuclear family home, those are all good things. This is an act of God's common grace, which just means God acting in a good way, but a non-saving way in society. So in his wisdom, God institutes these things. He brings these things to bear. But God's primary way that he works is through born-again, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, living the Beatitudes in a way that preserves God's goodness. But this is also not 
all that he says about being salt. In the second half of verse 13, it says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So how important is it to be salt to the rest of the world? Well, without being salt, our witness is worthless. And it deserves to be thrown out, trampled over. There is no devotion to Jesus Christ without being seen as salt in the world. There's no third way here. You're either in or you're out. And if you want to be in and you want to be in without being salt, you will then be out. That kind of witness, that kind of faith, it's worthless. It has no value. It isn't the real deal. This is a minor and scientific point, but again, you know you're here for the science and you know I bring it. What we know about salt now is that it is a very stable molecule, which probably explains why it's so good at doing the job of preservation. So we want to be the real deal and not an imitation. There's a lot written when you, when you start to dig into this text and what people have written about this text over the years. Apparently, there is some sort of white powder that is found around the Dead Sea that looks a lot like salt but isn't salt. It's impure. It's a knockoff. And it cannot do the, real jo- the job that real salt does. So whether Jesus had that substance in mind or not, we just, we just can't know. But the Bible can confirm that our faith must be genuine. And that's what being salt is. To use Jesus' own metaphor, to be real salt, we need to do real following and, and be a real preservative of the faith on earth. So be different, be unique, be salt. I'll end this section giving John Stott the last word again. The Sermon on the Mount is built on the assumption that Christians are different. And it issues a call to us to be different. Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and cherished history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. Well, next in verse 14, Jesus will go on from being salt to being light. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. This is... I think exponentially easier as a metaphor for two reasons. One, light. Um, there's just a lot more verses about light, which we'll look at some of them here in a little bit. Um, but he also tells us, you know, in verse 15, uh, the reason that you are light is so that they may see your good works. So we understand what, what light means, um, but, how, but how does Jesus get there? Well, looking again in verse 14, we see first that we are the light of the world. Notice the symmetry to the previous verse in its directness and its totality. We are light, and we're light of the whole world. Nowhere else is light found outside of the followers of Jesus Christ. Just like salt is, is, is on the earth and it's Christians, light is found in Christ and Christians. In the world, the light you see is the light followers the light of the followers of Jesus Christ. And again, not to to belabor the point, but I want you to see the connection. Those who are walking with Christ, pursuing a life that looks like the Beatitudes, those are the ones that are shining light. 
And the light of our good works shine out and they're seen as projecting into the unbelieving world. How how do we understand this shining out? What does it look like for it to shine out? Well, we see that Jesus continues the the metaphor by by saying a a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, he's not flipping the metaphor, but he's just better explaining what it means to, to shine out. The metaphor is that light cannot be hidden. It shines forth and it is seen just like a large city cannot be hidden. We don't have the ability to cloak New York City. You can see it from space. Cities on hills in the Near East in Jesus' day had the added ability that you would be able to see them in the distance because of the geography. Cities can't be hidden. Indeed, they're not meant to be hidden. If you build your city on a hill, you know why you did it. And then next, Jesus says, uh, he comes back to to the light in verse 15 that says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. So to contextualize this, why do you turn on your lights in your home? When someone, some unexpected visitor knocks on your door, are you flipping on the light or are you turning off the light and ducking behind the couch like a normal person? (laughs) I say that humorously to say, the point is that the purpose of turning on a light is for, for it to shine, for it to be seen. Light goes everywhere. That's the amazing thing about light is that as it goes out, there's no amount of darkness that can overtake it. In a pitch black cave, if you light even the smallest of matches, it can never be overrun by the darkness. Darkness cannot swallow light. Light always shines in darkness. Jesus says that light pours through the house and illuminates everything it touches. So Jesus is, his words paint a vivid picture that our good works shine out and are seen. And indeed, they cannot be suppressed. And I think this is the purpose of why we live the way we do. It brings light to the dark and drives the darkness out. So how do we understand these good works? Well, direct, directly, the context tells us that it's our life as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's the metaphor. That's what Jesus is saying, that, that this light within you shines out. The, sh- the shining is good works. These good works cannot be hidden but seen. But what else does the Bible have to say about light? And while I, I understand that this, the, the metaphor and what the, the verses that we're going to look, look at don't directly connect, but the, but the New Testament and Jesus had a lot to say about light. So let us look at some of these verses to help us better understand the Bible's overall picture of understanding what it means to be light, to have light, to shine light. Join me, if you will, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is well known, and often we think about John chapter 1, and we think about Jesus being the Word, which is true, but let me show you some more in the first nine verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sidebar, that's That verse is what I was thinking when I said just a minute ago that darkness can't overshine light. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So initially we see John calls out that Jesus is light. He is the light, the light that shines in darkness. He is the, the, the light that John the Baptist would speak about. So Jesus, so part of understanding light is that Jesus is light. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Verses 19 and 20 speak more about Christ as the light. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we also see that Jesus is the light. We do not innately have the light. And when the light shows up, we don't go to the light, we run from the light. We don't want the light. We don't want Christ. We run from that. We don't want our, our sinful deeds to be exposed. But yet, there, there comes something that happens that when we do come to the light, when Christ brings us to the light, we see that, that it come, we come in God to the light. So the, the light isn't just life generally. It doesn't mean that, that light is just something we already have, but the light is Christ. And then in John chapter 8, it says this in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now we're seeing Jesus is saying that, that I am light, but I'm going to impart light to you. And those who follow me will walk in a manner that is not walking in darkness, but will walk with the light of life. One more uh, verse in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a very um, interesting connection that Paul makes with the teachings of Christ. Ephesians 5 Starting in verse 8, it says this. For at one time you were darkness. So remember, the difference between a metaphor and a simile. A metaphor is more direct, right? We don't see the words like or as. Typically when you're using a metaphor, it's because you're turning the heat up on something. And so Paul is saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we were darkness. Not like darkness, we were darkness. I lost my place. Continuing in eight. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So again, you see that Paul is pretty clearly picking up on what Jesus teaches in both John, the book of John and in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that the light dwells in believers. And we walk as light. And the way we walk is walking in a manner worthy of the light or worthy of Christ. And we're doing good, right, and true things, which sounds like what Jesus says, good works. 
So we see from these texts that, that there is darkness in the world and it is sin and it dwells within us. And there's this light that comes. The light is Christ. But there's this thing that happens that brings the light of the world into our hearts is the light of life. And then we now live in a manner that glorifies God through walking as light and not darkness. So we see that the, these metaphors back in Matthew 5 are set we preserve the faith in society by being salt and we shine out and cannot be hidden in this world by shining the light of good works. So our preservation is not done in a corner, but it is the means of exposing sin and the schemes of the devil to bring the gospel to the nations. So that reminds me, I didn't keep reading in Ephesians 5. Hold on. So it goes on to say in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but it's instead expose them. So again, that's that, that idea of, of preserving the good faith that, that Christ has given us. Take no part not only in don't do works of darkness, but expose them. Bring them to the light. Be a preservative. So this, these themes of salt and life have an echo in Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. But now back in Matthew 5, we see that we're exposing these sins and these schemes and we're, we're bringing the gospel and good works to the, the nations. And, and why do we do that? Well, back in chapter 5, verse 16, it says, in the same way. So Jesus is giving us the payoff of these metaphors by saying, just like you let the light shine out, the reason it comes out is in verse 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that shining out is what we knew because we understand the text. We know where he's going. But let us not miss the purpose of our good works. Because I think we know what we would want our good works to be. We would want them to gain us something. Maybe fame or fortune or like me, you just want to be considered a really nice guy. It's so easy to want our good works to be seen celebrated, and, and good works that give us something. But our good works aren't about us, but they're about someone infinitely better. Our good works are about giving glory to God. There's just so much to think about. Because Jesus will go on to say in uh, chapter 6 of this same book, where he'll say, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we need to guard our motives and how we practice our righteousness and our good works. Because we have this desire deep within us to be glory thieves. It's what we naturally want with them, right? What's in it for me? It's a good corporate America term. It's also a good sales term. Not great for your faith. What benefit does this give me? What will doing these good works provide for me? These are the questions we ask, or I ask. You guys are probably far too pious, but I ask these things. What we have to understand is that we are staring at the call to do the greatest good we can do. God gives everything eternal meaning and value. So feeding the poor, being merciful, being a peacemaker, enduring persecution, they're not about you and me getting the glory. It's all about God and giving him the glory he deserves. 
And God deserves all of the glory we can give him and infinitely more. This is living as a follower of Christ in this world. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You are exposed and shining out brightly in this dark world. We have the difficult work of preserving and carrying on, but we do it for eternally significant reasons. The Westminster Catechism, their first question, the first thing that this catechism wants the young or new believer to understand about this faith is this. The question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? What's our point? Why are we here? What's the biggest and best reason that man is here? And the answer given is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Realistically, the answer to that question is the most succinct way to explain Matthew 5, verses 2 through 16. So explaining the Beatitudes and explaining salt and light is the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism. Think about it. We give, if our chief end is to give glory to God, we see in verse 16 that we let our lights, light, our works shine out like light so that others will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And then it says to fully enjoy him forever. Remember, the Beatitudes are about being blessed. The whole purpose of the Beatitudes is that we pursue these things by the grace God supplies and they give us blessing. So the answer to the question of what is our chief and highest end is to live and enjoy and to fellowship with Christ by living the Beatitudes and living our faith in an unbelieving world. So Jesus is laying it all out for us here. And the question we ask is, how are we doing? Glorifying God through our good works. And are we truly happy, blessed by enjoying God by following his commands? Where are we at on that? And maybe... This sounds like a tall order to you. You might be thinking, I don't know that I have it in me to live like that. Or I don't want to give up my own glory. I want people to see my works. We don't talk like this, but we can all live like this. It's easy to do. And I would even admit to you that this is a monumental, if not impossible, task for fallen humanity to do. We don't want to do these good works. Remember John 3 that we saw. We we don't come to the light. We desire darkness. We run from the light. We don't want to give glory to God. We want to keep glory for ourselves. We don't want to shine or preserve. We want to fit in. And we certainly can find ourselves not trusting that God can be all he claims to be. This is our nature. This is who we are to our sinful core. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't do this by self-discipline or by earning anything. There are two texts that I want you to think about this morning. The first is Ezekiel 36. It says this. So Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is, is writing in Ezekiel 36, telling Ezekiel to take down note of what is this new covenant going to look like? What is this new promise going to look like? And in verse 26, it says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the second verse is a New Testament verse from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness.
So God in his infinite wisdom gives us regeneration. He makes us new from the inside out. Now the Beatitudes and being salt and light are not just acts that earn us salvation or even acts that are done contrary to our nature. But God's salvation is so total in its scope that he gives us the desires and the ability to take the glory that we might receive for ourselves from our good works and point it all to him. It's all a work of God from beginning to end. We don't have desires, he gives us new desires. We don't, we don't want to do, he gives us the desire to do. We can't do, he says you can do. And he does it all by recreating us first. He changes our hearts from the inside out saying, you don't want this, but you, want, you will want it because I will give you a heart of flesh. This text also reveals to us that in the face of a dark and sinful world, this world that will probably even persecute us, we saw that back in verses 10 through 12 of the Beatitudes, our good works are powerful light that point others to Christ, when, to God, excuse me, when they happen. I started this part thinking about the internal struggle that we might have in showing our good works and wanting to claim the glory for ourselves. But what the text says in verse 16 is that they will see these good works and give glory to your Father. These works are so powerful, so unique, and so outside of ourselves that, that the only recourse they will have is to say, that's from God. That's not from me. It's not from you. That's from somewhere else. It's from God. And I believe that the others in verse 16, where it says, let your light so shine before others, I believe the others there in verse 16 is referencing the world in verse 14. I think Jesus is speaking about our witness to the unbelieving world. So this doesn't mean, I don't believe that Jesus means that, that our light is going to shine in front of fellow believers and fellow believers will glorify their God who is in heaven. While I do think that is true, I think that does happen. It will happen naturally. I met with a brother just this week who explained to me his intricate prayer plan, and I gave glory to God that he was so dedicated in prayer. And it, it made me want to be more systematized about my prayer. But I think the context here would suggest that these works being done are, are believers shining out into an unbelieving world. The outworking of our faith in Jesus Christ has a powerful effect on the world around us. That's the message of Jesus and his teaching of the character of our nature as followers of him. So as we close, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ and his call to be salt and light in this world? If the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that you don't have a relationship with Christ, first admit that apart from Christ, you cannot do anything to earn salvation in him. As we said at the beginning and in the middle, and I'll say it here at the end, being salt and light is not for entrance into God's kingdom, but about how we live once we are a part of the kingdom. If you have lived your life seeking to earn salvation by trying to do good works, repent from this lifestyle and turn to Christ alone for salvation. We earn nothing from our good works, not even our own glory. 
But Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So turn to the one and only mediator between God and humanity, the God-man Jesus Christ. Believe in the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. And one final word to those who are following Christ by grace this morning. The, the command of the metaphor is clear. It says, let your works shine. Live uniquely in this present age. And this text reminds us that God is honored when we bear fruit. It's good to bear fruit and be different and unique and be devoted to Christ in this present age. And I think John 15, 5 and 8 and 9 can give us some more to think about as we, as we apply this text. Jesus says in, in 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. We just sang that. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Down in verse 8, he'll go on to say, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We cannot, we can do none of this, nothing that we're speaking about this morning apart from the power of Christ. He offers us that in love so we can pursue blessing. We can walk as salt and light in this life to the unbelieving world. So pursue living under the commandments of Christ found in the New Testament. Live for Christ and let all of us give God all of the glory and honor due his great name. Let's pray. Father, as we finish this morning and we think about being salt and light in this world, thank you that your word is clear, that we don't do this by our own discipline or on our own accord, but that we do it by the power and grace that you've given us through your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I would ask, please pour out your Spirit on us today. Open the eyes of those here this morning that have never put their trust in Christ that they too could, could walk in this, this life, that you would give them life, eternal life now. Because eternal life is knowing Christ and the Father whom sent. So open the eyes of the blind. Take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And for those here this morning, God, who have a heart of flesh, give us new desires. Refresh old desires to live as salt and light in this world. Not because we're earning salvation or earning anything, but what we're, what we're doing is glorifying your great name. Your word says that, that when we do these works, these are our spiritual service of worship. We are worshiping you when we come before you and offer good works. So may we do these good works by the power you supply for the glory you deserve so that we all may say, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join the word?